Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome to our NOW 2020 podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. We are simply trying to understand the world better, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. We are committed to sharing the views of CEOs and other leaders so that we can all learn from their perspectives on how to navigate the future. We would like to hear from you as well. We invite you to leave a review or take a moment to complete the short questionnaire on the NOW website so that we can learn from your thoughts, questions, and feedback. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these NOW conversations will help us do just that. We are living in unprecedented times. New COVID-19 cases are increasing at an alarming rate. Communities are dealing with tragic economic devastation. And we're experiencing a profound movement to address centuries of racial violence and injustice. The challenges we face as a society can feel overwhelming. For the children living through these crises, the toll, psychologically, socially, economically, may have lifelong impact. I'm Dune Thorne, and I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. To help guide us during these challenging times, I wanted to reach out to someone who has spent her career focused on elevating the health and well-being of children, children in the midst of large-scale crises. I'm really pleased to introduce you to Carol Stern, Executive Director of the Walton Family Foundation, one of the largest foundations in the United States. Before joining the foundation in January, Carol spent 13 years as CEO of UNICEF USA, where she spearheaded UNICEF's emergency relief efforts for children affected by disasters, including the 2010 Haiti earthquake, the 2011 East Africa drought, the Ebola and Zika epidemics, and the ongoing global refugee crisis. I always learn a lot from talking with Carol, and this seemed like an important moment to get her perspective. I want to start with a question that more than ever is important for all of us to ask one another when we connect in our virtual environments, which is, how are you? In today's challenging time, really, how are you doing? Well, you're right, though. It is the question we should all start with. I think I'm every emotion possible right now. I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm sad to see changes I had hoped I would have seen coming in my lifetime, not yet there. And at the same time, I'm, I'm energized. I'm energized by this window that's gotten open. You know, it, the pandemic and the the racial unjust, the, it's not the pandemic and it's not a policeman's knee that are our problems today. They have actually helped us to shine a spotlight on injustices that have been around a long, long time. So I'm, you know, I'm energized about the spotlight. I feel like this window has opened up that could potentially bring about some great change. And at the same time, I'm tired. So you've 
worked around the world in so many countries, and you've seen the impact that True and Equity has on communities, on countries, on society firsthand. You've also been a part of creating systemic change where, frankly, few thought it was really possible. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the inequities that are being illuminated in our country today and what signs of progress you're seeing for real structural change to address these inequities that's so desperately needed today. So, you know, I wish I could tell you I'm seeing great progress in my almost 63 years of life. I've seen progress, though. There has been some, not enough, but some. And I'm seeing something in a moment that that feels different than 1968. You know, yes, the window opened then and it's opening now, but... A, I think that people are beginning to recognize that our problems are not going to be solved exclusively by government, exclusively by philanthropy, or exclusively by the marketplace, that it's going to take all three. And I was really impressed that at the beginning of this crisis with the pandemic, you saw corporate leaders, civic leaders, and philanthropic leaders coming together and saying, how do I change my factory into a respirator factory? How do I now make masks instead of shirts? How can I use my supply chain to get you the fabric you need to do that? Philanthropy, can you help us convert this factory? It was the first time I've really seen the three sectors intersect in that way, and I think that that's real progress. I think the other progress that I'm seeing that I'm excited about is This is just a Carol opinion, but there are kind of three kinds of people. So when I look at the social justice issues right now, there are racists. You know, there are definitely racists in the world and in our country. And then there are those who aren't racist, but they don't think that the problem is theirs. And then there are those who we would call anti-racist, who are actively engaged. I see more anti-racism than I've seen in a long time And I think I saw more post-68, a move from racism to non-racism, but the engagement of all kinds of people standing together right now, I I see that as, as significant, and I see that as progress. So we're going through an incredibly challenging time. There's a triple crisis in place right now with the pandemic, the economic fallout, racial violence, not to mention the threats around climate change, critical inequities in education, the list really goes on. You've made a career of managing crises literally around the world in a way that few other leaders have. What advice would you give to other leaders about how to effectively manage through crisis? I always say, if you're not a food bank, (laughs) don't become one in the wake of a crisis because there are people who know how to do that. So do what you do best. Second, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. I've really learned in a crisis you have to act quickly and you have to recognize that it is both a sprint and a marathon. So Rescue and recovery, as when in the wake of an earthquake, that's a sprint. But rebuild, that's a marathon. And so the same thing is true with the pandemic. The same thing is true with, with racial injustices. There are some things we can do quickly, and we need to, and we need to show we're serious about it. And then we need long-term strategy. And then I think the last thing is that I would say is that you need to look at a crisis as a moment to learn. It's not only what we do, but how we take the time to learn from what we do. Because each time there is a crisis, there's something from the last one that informs this one. And 
if we don't do that, then we are forever repeating mistakes. And so it is building into the marathon piece, especially reflective thinking before we move forward. Carol, to follow up on that, talk to us about how crisis periods like we're in today impact the power of partnerships. I can give you one great past example of partnership. In the wake of the storm in Puerto Rico, I was at that time the CEO of UNICEF USA, and we really wanted to respond, but we didn't have staff on the ground in Puerto Rico. And I looked around to see who was doing something we might partner or support in in the immediate rescue and recovery efforts. And I saw that Governor Cuomo had gone down to Puerto Rico and actually asked, what do you need? And I was impressed with his journey. So reached out to him, found out he had cleared space at JFK Airport. The attorney general was on the ground in Puerto Rico vetting organizations that could help. But he had never really um, pulled together the fundraising side of that. And at the same time, also, while he was amassing equipment, we had to figure out how we were going to actually get it there. At the time, the CEO of UPS was on the board, had just joined the board, and ironically was coming to my office the next day to be onboarded to the board of UNICEF USA. So we canceled that onboarding. And instead, we put the governor's team, the UPS team, and the UNICEF team together. The net result of that was UPS had trucks on the ground. They had drivers and they had fuel. They also had transportation and logistics expertise. UNICEF had the ability to raise the dollars as a credible organization and to really vet what was needed and what should be gotten and to take advantage of things like hygiene kits that were already put together because this is what UNICEF does. And the governor was able to clear the way to make all of that come together rather quickly so that we were able to get supplies to some of the most remote areas of Puerto Rico before anyone else because we had three sets of expertise that came together with one solution. Yeah, and love hearing about the impact that, you know, partnership like that can have. And also the, you think about the root of how that happened, right? And how did that come together? It was a sense of trust and commitment to impact that you all had about how do we create change and reaching out and saying, let's help. (laughs) It, It was, it was trust, it was impact, it was reaching out. But it was also recognition of what do you do well? And let's bring that to the table. You know, I look right now um, at, for example, we just had our foundation, an amazing conversation with Pharrell about what he's doing in Virginia because he's, he's got a great idea and a great program. We want to learn from it. And then he wants to learn from what our foundation is doing in the Delta. We're doing similar work in two different locations. Let's put our heads together. Those are the kinds of things, as I said, Rachel Carlson and Ken Chenault, coming together and saying, we have a Rolodex full of very powerful CEOs who've got access to facilities. How can we put those to good use? Who else do we bring to the table to help make that happen? I was so awed by what they did because they recognized their strengths and then sought the strengths of others that could fill in the gaps. Carol, let's turn to education, an issue that in many ways has been your life's work. Data suggests that during the lockdown of the past three months, only 60% of low-income students regularly logged in to online instruction compared with 90% of high-income students. And there are estimates that the remote learning environment could cause low-income students to fall a year behind in learning. How is the Walton Family Foundation thinking about adjusting its grant strategy to address these issues? 
addressing these gaps is already at the core of what we do. You know, for the last three decades, the foundation has worked to create access to opportunity for people and communities. So this is not new work for us. You know, this focus includes increasing student access to excellent schools where there's great teaching and where learning can and does happen. So the events of the past few months have increase the urgency and the relevance of our work, but it's not new work for us. One of our earliest conclusions, as a matter of fact, about COVID is that it just has exacerbated what were existing conditions. You know, what was true before COVID is even more true now. Too many of our most vulnerable kids do not have access to a quality education. They didn't have it before the pandemic, and now even more, you know, one in every five students, one in every five students across the country lacks access with the remote learning. And that's the kids who may not have a computer or may not have broadband, but there are also the kids where perhaps they're living in tight quarters and it's impossible to learn because there are multiple children trying to learn while mom is working, or that's not even including the child for whom there's been some kind of an emotional crisis that might take them out of the classroom as well. So, you know, we've been asking ourselves, how do we ensure kids keep learning? And the answer isn't simple. It touches everything from food security and ensuring they have that hot meal every day to internet connectivity, to high quality online tools, to helping teachers be ready for this kind of teaching, everything that helps kids stay on track. And our focus is on finding and supporting solutions to these challenges while we also continue to eliminate barriers to access. So even without the virus, the average Black or Hispanic student remains roughly two years behind the average white student. How do you think about K-12 education from a racial justice standpoint? I think as a foundation, we know that education is a racial justice issue. It's not this has suddenly brought that to light. And we have to really take that step back. We have to examine the structures inherent in our systems that prevent every Black child, every Hispanic child in this nation from attending a great school. And whether that's because of the tax structure that supports the schools or other reasons, whether it is assessment tools we're using, we know that there are inherent inequities and we need to change that. Talk a bit more about how we can make real change to help all kids get a great education. I think we have to look at a, a couple of different things. You know, one, we have to start with how we fund education. You know, in many places in our country are funded by local real estate taxes. You got a problem because that means in an affluent community, you have a better school than a less affluent community. So I think we need to look at the, the overall funding structure and, and consider alternatives there. But I think also we have to look at teacher preparation across the board, even in, in the more affluent school of yesterday, because few teachers are prepared to go back in our classrooms in September. You know, they will have kids in their class who have not learned for six months when research shows us that even a three-month gap in learning has an impact. So you'll have some who have had a three-month summer break, and you will have some who have had a six-month integrated into one room. You'll have some who had parents at home and weren't working and perhaps supported additional learning. You'll have some who have had none. You will have children who have lived through an incredibly psychosocial summer. I remember in the wake of the storm in Texas, a third grade class, and I went in to see the teacher because we had funded her, and, and her saying to me that the most horrible thing was the first rainstorm after the major storm because her third graders hid under their desks, and nobody had stopped to think about what rain was going to mean moving forward. 
These kids are going to come back to school, many of them having lost a family member or having watched a family member become ill or been in a household where a parent lost a job because we all know what's happened to jobs around the country and where the economic situation is going to be dramatically different. We also know that when people are home and lose jobs, that things like domestic violence go up. And so the psychosocial aspect of that classroom is going to be really, really significant. And few of our teachers are adequately prepared for that. They're also not prepared. Most of them in their formal training didn't learn how to teach remotely. So even for those who were teaching and learning, we're not sure what retention is going to be. We're not sure how to assess that learning. And I think that we need to think really long and hard about how we help teachers go back in. Well, to follow up on that, Carol, you were thinking you're talking so much about the importance of teacher training, which is at the root of an equitable and just education for all. So as you think about teacher training, in your view, how should we be training and equipping teachers so that their students can succeed? This is a a big program area for our foundation. You know, we believe the people closest to the challenge are closest to the solution. So we look for ideas that put educators in the classroom, you know, in the position to make the decisions about their classrooms, their schools, et cetera. And then we also look at it, you know, teachers are like doctors, they're like nurses, they're like lawyers, like athletes, you know, they need relevant, rigorous training, and they need hands-on experience and practice. You know, there are a number of teacher residency programs across the country, as well as the traditional training programs, and they're reforming their entire curricula right now. You know, many, many years ago, I helped to co-author a book on professional development, and we put a model into it that was for professional development for educators, but it applies to really any professional development. So if you picture a square with four quadrants, and down one axis is competency, and down the other axis is consciousness, and we kind of broke it into four boxes. So, you know, the first being those that are competent, but not conscious, you know, the natural athlete, the person that goes out on the field and, you know, hits a home run the first time, but doesn't understand the theory behind it, doesn't know why they're able to do it, could never teach it to somebody else, but but knows how to do it themselves, just does it. And that kind of person needs, you know, substantive knowledge base. They need learning that's going to give them the facts and the theory. The second kind of person is conscious, but not competent. You know, that's a sports fan. They know all the rules of the game. They're yelling at that TV. They're yelling at the coach. But if you put them on the field, they can't hit the home run. And that kind of person needs real practice, needs to get out on the field and actually try it out and keep doing it and doing it until they teach those muscles how to do what they need to do. But then there's like the person who's both conscious and competent, and that's a coach, and that's a person who understands the theory behind it, but also can demonstrate and can teach you how to do it. And our teachers need to be coaches. They need to be competent, and they need to be conscious. And we need to train teachers in both of those directions. We do have a fourth box. We call it Barry. That's the incompetent and unconscious, and we named it Barry after a young man. I won't name his school, but he was a basketball player recruited because of his height not because of his skills. And the particular institution made it to the NCAA finals only once. They were down by uh, 1.10 seconds left to the game. Barry got the ball. All he had to do was sink it in the basket, but he chose to dribble instead, hit his foot, the ball bounced out, the other team got the ball, and they lost. He didn't know what to do, and when he tried to do something, he didn't know how to do it. So 
those are people who shouldn't be on the court. And I think that's the other reality factor is that when we look at teachers, this is one of the most important professions that we have, and we need to hold it to a very high standard. So Carol, you've spoken about addressing students' psychological needs in addition to their academic needs. Where have you seen this done well, and what programs can we learn from? You know, it's never been more important than today. You know, we need to learn from the educators who who infuse, you know, psychosocial needs and emotional support across all their subject matters. And I would say one of the best programs I've seen in that area is Valor Collegian. It's a school in Nashville, and it helps students both socially and emotionally in everything they do. And they serve an incredibly diverse student body and help students learn to reach across boundaries and learn from one another. You know, the foundation has supported their social emotional approach. You know, it's called Compass, and it's phenomenal. It helps students understand themselves and others in the context of what they're learning. And I've seen how important psychosocial support is in my work. I've seen it in the refugee camps where we have child-friendly spaces because we want kids to play in an environment where someone's watching them and getting to know them well enough to identify psychosocial needs because that's how we help kids to move forward. It was interesting following the storms that ravaged Texas Psychosocial became one of the most important contributions that UNICEF made to the state. And there was a model created in partnership with one of the hospitals down there because teachers did feel ill-equipped to um, to just respond to the questions they were getting in their classrooms. And then to they were seeing behaviors that, that were indicative of extreme stress, extreme fear and anxiety. And at the same time, teachers were also feeling those emotions. So if we don't give them a toolbox to pull from in a moment where they're feeling it, they feel even less equipped. There are lots of innovative programs out there, including those trying to address the specific issues around education and the pandemic. For example, Tennessee is recruiting a thousand college students to tutor kids who are falling behind. What programs are you particularly excited about? There are a number of things going on that I'm so excited about, but I think one that I'm particularly excited about is called the National Summer School Initiative. You know, when schools closed earlier this year, several education groups came together, talk about partnership, wanting to keep kids active and challenge the summer, understanding that many of the usual summer activities were also going to get canceled, as well as this big learning gap between when the when the classroom closed, not the not the computer classroom, but the physical classroom, and then when it would reopen. So they have more than 400 teachers already you know, signed up, creating an entirely new distance learning experience, and 10,000 children have already signed up for the program this summer. I think that's phenomenal. I want to ask you about the transition you've just made as a leader and in your life. What did you learn that could help others who are going through transitions? So when I told my friends I was taking this job, everybody was so excited. And then they said, oh, and by the way, I'm moving to Arkansas too. And they were, they looked at me and they said, you're doing what? You know, you've lived in New York most of your life, not all of my life, but most of your life. And, you know, when you have that list of what are the most stressful things you can do, move, I moved, take a new job, I took a new job, deal with a major illness, the pandemic crisis started, you know, um, 
it's been a really crazy time. I mean, I was in the office literally five weeks before Shelter at Home began. And so by the time I left the office, I hadn't even had a personal interaction with my entire staff. So it was um, scary. At the same time, fun, I have to admit. There's, you know, it was like being a college freshman again and moving to a new place. And for the past 14 years, you don't go into, you know, 30 plus countries where you know no one and the cultures are different and the language is different and the conditions are different without getting somewhat adept at doing that. So I kind of like the challenge of the newness and of figuring it all out. Um, and I think that's that's been really kind of informative to me. But I think the biggest thing I would say to somebody who might be my age thinking about a big job change that I hadn't contemplated, this is my biggest takeaway. I was doing my last job for a long time. And I had been at UNICEF 14 years, the CEO 13 years, UNICEF USA. And so by year 13, especially, I don't even know when this kicked in, I, I had a lot of confidence. I wasn't afraid I was going to really screw it up. And I wasn't afraid I'd get fired if I did. So I, my risk factors were, you know, a little bit bigger, maybe. And I knew my board really well, and I trusted them and they trusted me. And so my confidence level was really high. You start a new job, it doesn't matter that I'm almost 63, that I've got 40 plus years of a great track record. I am the new kid again, and I have to learn all over again whether I'm good at this or not. And I was shocked at how I, I actually commented to somebody, I think I'm 13 again, like I'm entering high school and everybody else sitting at the cool table and I'm just not sure where my seat in the cafeteria even is, you know. I was shocked at how it rocked kind of a little bit of the, am I any good at any of this? So if you're contemplating the change, think about that. <laughs> Carol, in closing... Given all the sadness and tragedy around us right now, what gives you hope? You know, I think all of the faces in the street gave me hope. I, I really do believe, you know, it's on the do something.org site, I think, that where it says our children are, you know, young people are 25% of the population and 100% of the future. And we're seeing the future in the street right now. We're seeing the future demand change. We're seeing the future not only demand change, wanting to be part of making change happen strategically. They want to do it in ways that make sense. I think it's really exciting to see young people stand up for what they believe in. And I've seen the power of young people so many times. You know, I always say it's like cigarette smoking. Every campaign that told you you were going to get sick, people ignored. But when they went to kids and said to kids, tell your mother not to smoke, mother stop smoking. And I think that's, we're having to tell your mother not to smoke moment. And I think that's really exciting. I also think that the focus on education, that spotlight, really gives me hope. There is a, a quote I'll end with, and I'll probably bastardize it, so I will apologize. And Dune, you've heard me say this, I think, before. But it is, on some level, somewhere, Thomas Jefferson, I'm told, but I've never been able to find the exact words. So bear with me, but that's who I think said it. But he said something to the effect, if we solve all the problems of the world and we fail to solve the problems of education, then our children will destroy what we bequeath them. But if we solve only the problems of education, our children will solve the problems of the world. And I see a spotlight on education right now, and it gives me great hope that our children will solve the problems of the world. 
Thank you, Carol, for being with us today. Your hands-on experience has brought such a grounded and human perspective to the table for all of us. We're grateful for everything you're doing to make such an impact in the world today. Thank you. Next week, we'll be back with the final episode in our Now podcast, and we are all in for a treat. My partner, Ken Stusen, will be speaking with Jason Collarai, an astrophysicist and the head of civil space at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, where he studies space science and leads space exploration missions. I hope you will join us for what should be a fascinating conversation.